Hi, this is Steve Poor, and you're listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Over the past decade or so, the legal industry has expanded dramatically to include different kinds of providers. No part of the industry has contributed to that growth more than the managed services sector. Today, we're joined by Ed Sohn, a veteran of that segment of the industry. As with so many of our guests, Ed started out in big law, in this case, as an attorney with King & Spalding. A desire to see India led Ed to spend seven years in executive with Pangea 3, the company that pioneered legal managed services and that was acquired by Thomson Reuters. When Thomson Reuters sold Pangea 3 to Ernst & Young, Ed moved to EY Law. At EY Law, Ed led its global innovation and technology initiatives. Ed has since left EY Law and joined Factor, which is a spinoff of Axiom and is a unique player in the managed services sector. In his current role at Factor, he's responsible for the learning, development, and capacity of the more than 600 lawyers that call Factor home. Ed tells us that his goal is to advance change in the legal industry by delivering practical scale and quality through managed services. As you listen to today's conversation, you'll learn how key moments of reflection changed his career path how his personal interest in traveling India led to one of the most defining experiences of his career, and more about his belief that true innovation isn't about disaggregation or artificial intelligence. Instead, it's about tapping into human potential. My thanks to Ed for the time and the interesting conversation. Hey, Ed, how are you today? Very good. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for joining us on the podcast. I appreciate your time. Absolutely. Happy to be here. Where in the world am I finding you? I am currently in Atlanta, Atlanta, Georgia. Ah, uh, beautiful place to be in June. <laughs> it's getting a little hot. I think it's going to be in the mid-90s today, uh, but it is. It's, it's a great place. Yeah, it's great. Well, let's talk a little bit about Factor and what your role is and what the organization does. But before we get there, let's sort of go back to the beginning. You're a computer science major coming out of college, and you transitioned to law school. What took you to law school? with a computer science background. Yeah, I think it was an important journey for me. One of my first kind of professional decisions I had to make. Coming into undergrad, I was a computer science major. I had an engineering background, sort of like math and science strength coming out of high school. And, you know, my parents and my family kind of steered me that direction. I thought that that made made a lot of sense. I enjoyed invention. I enjoyed science. I enjoyed math. And when I got to college, I recognized that I might sort of have other talents. And those were being kind of cultivated inside of me, an affinity for the humanities, for English literature, for, you know, uh, political science and legal work. And then around, I was in college between 98 and 2002. In the middle, there's something that happened called the dot-com bubble. It burst. And <laughs> yes, I remember. Yeah. And it's weird because it's ancient history now. We're sort of like several kind of market corrections after that now in in our kind of economic history. But a lot of the jobs sort of dried up. A lot of times, you know, when I was going to college, being a computer science major was sort of like you could do computer science, you could be a coder, you could be an inventor. Yeah, I went to University of Illinois in Champaign. They have a very robust computer science program. A lot of the internet was invented there, the integrated circuit, Mortal Kombat, like important. Great school for that. Paragons for engineering, yeah. And so, you know, you could sort of do anything. And that was always my understanding coming out of college. And then 2001 hit, and it turned out you couldn't really do anything. So I sat for the LSAT, did pretty well in my first try, you know, just a practice exam. 
and uh, decided that I wanted to explore law, thinking I would go into intellectual property, patent law, that a computer science degree from an engineering school could sort of qualify you for the patent patent bar. And that's what I thought I was going to do. Uh, of course, once I got to law school, once I did my summer internship, you know, with a large law firm, I decided I really wanted to be a real, quote unquote, real lawyer, you know, in the truest sense as a litigator and uh, business litigation. And so that's kind of where my career took me. That's interesting. You went to King & Spalding down in Atlanta. That's right. What took you to King & which is a fabulous firm, by the way. I'm very grateful for my training there. I, you know, went to law school during a moment where, you know, there's a real boom in the legal industry, especially in law firms. Was very fortunate to go to Penn for law school, received great training, lots of opportunities there. But also, it was just a very hot moment in the market. I recruited in five different cities. I got five different offers. I split my summer, actually, between King and & Spaulding and Cadwallader in New York. And the way I kind of broke up my kind of natural experiment was to focus on litigation and IP during my time at KNS and focus on transactional practice during my time at Cadwalder, uh, which has a very strong and historically has always had a very strong derivatives and structured finance practice. So I kind of focused on those areas of rotation as I went through each firm, decided that I really wanted to be a litigator. And it was more the practice that called me there, you know, King and Spalding having an excellent national litigation practice at the time. and. You know, my parents had moved down to Atlanta from Chicago, where I grew up. So there was a natural inclination there, but it wasn't really the reason. That wasn't the controlling factor. It really, at the end of the day, came down to an excellent summer experience with, an, you know, a leading firm with a really robust practice. And I felt like I wouldn't miss anything by sort of not going to a New York law firm, not going to Cadwallader, if I was going to really have a strong litigation practice. And so those are the big leading deciding factors. There were some cultural moments in there as well that I can talk about some other time maybe. But I really enjoyed sort of the blend of cutting edge, really kind of demanding elite legal practice at King & Spaulding, but also with like a dash of Southern hospitality and, you know, kind of local culture that was really imbued into every level of the firm. Well, that's great. As I said, it's a, it's a wonderful firm. It has been for a very long time. So I'm sure you got great training. I'm curious, your background in engineering and computer science tends to train people to think a certain way that that isn't always in complete concert with the way law is practiced. How did your background in engineering and computer science either help or enhance or impact your work as a, as a litigation attorney? I think there are three ways. The first way is, you know, I might volunteer that computer science actually prepares you in many ways for the practice of law because of a strong command on conditional logic on things like that. And so being able to make arguments when I sat for the LSAT, it did sort of give me a huge boost in some of those areas around logical reasoning. And then when I got to law school, similarly, I felt like I had a bit of an advantage when it came to a justice hand, handing down a three-prong test or sort of trying to calculate you know, restitution damages on a contract. A lot of law is more computational than one would think. And so I think that that really did give me a little bit of an edge in certain elements or aspects of the law where it's more science than art or at least styles itself that way. And so you can make kind of compelling and persuasive arguments on the basis of that kind of logical reasoning that came as part of that. The second reason where it kind of prepared me, and this is kind of part of the trajectory my career took, was really when it came to understanding technology as a an engine or a, a force of nature in the business world. If you think about the world as we knew it, the largest companies by market capitalization or growth or revenue 
the types of legal issues that were being considered when it comes to antitrust, data protection, IP. A lot of that has been in a massive state of change over the last, you know, 20, 25 years or so. And so when it comes to the substance and the capability of an attorney to be not only a legal counselor, but a holistic business counselor for our clients, understanding technology gave me a foundation that was really critical for understanding how our clients' businesses were changing. You know, we live in a post-COVID age where hybrid and virtual is everything. But back then, just basic digitization of documents, of customer service, of, you know, of, of, of supply chain. These were things that were transforming business at the time. And the computer science background really gave me some insight to helping our clients and counseling our clients that, that I represented at least with that angle or that viewpoint. And then the third dimension really is where technology and law intersected. And that's also dramatically changed, as I know you've paid attention to in your podcast and in many other areas, you know, where there has been significant evolution to the practice itself. I joined the practice the same year that the first revision to the federal rules was enacted, reflecting e-discovery and kind of requirements around records retention and you know, what was viewed as reasonably related to the discovery of admissible evidence and all that kind of stuff. And so that was important for me because that created a a niche that I could easily adopt. And then also in the very day-to-day kind of operational tactical things, when it came to finding a document, you know, in a moment when communications were exploding in volume, when email was becoming the standard, when inbox sizes were growing from 100 megabytes to 500 megabytes, to a gigabyte, to two gigabytes, to five gigabytes. And this, you know, rapid kind of growth and multiplication of artifacts in that would be potential facts in, in, you know, in which would lie potential facts in discovery. I sort of came into the practice just right at that right moment. And that equipped me to have a very kind of rare skill set in the law firm where a lot of people without that technical background uh, might not have that. And so I could kind of fast forward or short circuit some of those things in a way that was really productive and accretive to our client's value. It's interesting here you talk about that and, and put it in, in context of the time period because it hasn't been that long ago and yet the technology has evolved so rapidly. It's now that you mentioned it, I remember when the federal rules were changed and the discovery took off and it seems now second nature, but it certainly wasn't then. Totally. Yeah. It's one of those things where you live with it, you breathe it every day, you know, for thousands of hours a year and it feels like it's old news. But when you look back at history, I'd like to believe that I'm not so long tenured, that I've got a long way to go. I'm still kind of hitting my stride in my prime in my career. But in the short time that I feel like I've been involved in legal services, there's been just tremendous change, both in the business realities that, you know, our, our clients frequently face, as well as how the practice has tried to adjust for that. And in litigation, I think it's particularly notable because the technology really required keeping up. There were cases that, you know, were decided during my time as a litigator, not that I was involved with or representing clients, where the needle in the haystack represented a billion dollars of, you know, a verdict in <laughs> that would swing in the balance because one document in a million document, you know, production from one side to the other contained inside business intelligence that, yes, Apple totally ripped off, you know, some of the things that Samsung made, you know, and like there's a document internal in the, in the kind of landmark Apple versus Samsung litigation that was in front of, you know, Judge Cohen in the Northern District of California 
on which, uh, you know, a massive judgment rested. And it was a needle in a haystack. It was a fact theory, not a legal theory that kind of so much hung in the balance on this, this, this one document that existed in this massive ocean of data. And so we, we started to see those examples come up time and time again, where it was so critical and our clients were starting to understand that as well. And, and so, you know, your ability to deal with big data was truly dispositive on, you know, the, the outcomes that we're getting our clients. And, but it was all new, as you mentioned, you know, like it was, it was all sort of unfolding at the time. And so it was a reality that we all became accustomed to. And now today, obviously, electronic discovery and all the different kind of um, data sources and all that continues to move at a fast pace, but has a mature engine kind of fueling it forward and good principles to abide by and proportionality and like another way that we sort of have decided to govern our fact finding in our legal system, you know, and so I think that that's that there's more maturity there. But back in the days, I mean, it was it was fast and furious. Yeah, I'm curious. I'll stay back in the days just for sort of for one more question and then we'll we'll move into more recent decades. But at this in this moment, when you're a junior associate, a, a newly practicing lawyer with a computer science background and I'm picking up now on your description of science versus art, you're looking at it more as a, a science is computational. Were you encountering resistance from more senior lawyers who viewed it more as art? And what is this technology doing in the practice? And was that dynamic evident at the time? No, I, I think that I've always been surrounded by practitioners who viewed both the practice as well as the kind of technological revolutions happening within our clients and within our own industry as things to embrace, things to get ahead of, things to be open-minded about, receptive to. And then for those practitioners that I worked with that maybe didn't ever have that own personal investment or into that, their personal capability there, were very open to rely on others to supply that. And I didn't, I wasn't sort of in a world of really close-minded people who wanted to sort of stick their heads in the sand and, and not move forward with the times. I'd say in terms of specifically science versus art, that was just part of my personality as an associate. You know, there were associates that were more like poets <laughs> and then there were associates that were more like scientists. And I think that my approach to the work and, you know, the way that I would write my briefs and motions, the way that I would kind of construct my arguments, um, the possibilities that we put on the table, I think it served me pretty well. I, you know, probably there were certain qualities or maybe competencies, areas of strength that your more classical lawyer brought that maybe I had to catch up with more. And then there were other areas where I really differentiated my own viewpoint and perspective on some of those things. And I do think that there's a tremendous amount of kind of like linear algebra or kind of logical reasoning that can be very compelling. But I also, I guess maybe a different answer to your question is that my lens on it, my perspective was that I had a lot to learn. I would walk into, you know, a hearing with a partner, you know, I'm there to kind of just sit and learn. And the partner would present an oral argument that was compelling, that went through sort of and foreclosed multiple lines of possibility. Let's say it's like a 12B6 motion to dismiss hearing and could easily demonstrate why prima facie the claims were not sufficient to, you know, under 12B6 to state a claim for which relief can be granted. And then the other side would wax eloquent and invoke a number of cliches and idioms and would manage to see claims survive <laughs> on that basis. And I was like, I cannot understand what just happened. How did we, why did this happen? Why did the judge not see the cold logic that, and, and the, under the kind of cold light of day, the clear logical arguments that were made? And, you know, I had a lot to learn and everyone sort of griped about it and were annoyed, but 
we all move forward because we understand that there is art to the practice and not just science. And I viewed it as just my own learning experience. It is interesting how those two, you're right, there is art and there is science to it. And it's interesting how those two factors combine to produce the results that clients are looking for. So you're at King and Spalding for approximately five years. You moved to Pangea 3. What was that move about? What, what was your thinking there? Oh, you know, it's a natural move for any associate to pick up and move to India. I thought that that was, you know, <laughs> of course. Well, I you was going to go there. Yes, it, it doesn't seem. I will say India is, is what animated the move. I had a little bit of an early life crisis, turned 30, was kind of looking at my life. Partnership was not appealing to me at the time and kind of big firm life and what it took. You know, something about the way that I'm wired found very narrow the kind of options that were in front of me. And one of the hardest things for me working at a law firm was that I wanted to be a great lawyer. I didn't necessarily want to make partner. And at the time, at a place like King and & Spalding and with the Partner Trek Associates, an important part of the call, and I don't you know, hold any of this against King & Spalding at all. I think you could find this true at most law firms because of the business model. Associates were rewarded for you know, maintaining an external sort of uh, representation that they absolutely wanted to make partner, that it was the most important thing in their career, even when possibly it wasn't. <laughs> and I found that very tiring. I found it difficult, somewhat disingenuous, you know, and it was, again, and it, it's not something, I think it's something that law firms have done a lot about. I think there are some parallel tracks and alternate career destinations. It's not up or out, et cetera. And so there are some slow changes to that in, in, in uh, large law firms. But at the time, I found that really tiring. I also kind of took a look at my life. I spent three years in law schools, four years paying for it. And just like, and now I'm 30 and kind of missed out on my 20s to go and be adventurous and try a startup or travel the world. I, I, I felt like I had missed out on something. And one of the things I really missed out on was I really wanted to spend a lot of time overseas. I had worked with some nonprofits doing kind of justice work in India you know, early in my law school career as a 1L working with, you know, an anti-human trafficking organization. And I always had sort of a yearning to be back out there, but wanted to find a way to direct my career. I wasn't ready to kind of abandon everything and step out and, you know, kind of eat, pray, love my way through India. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, well, what, what can I do? What's a creative move? From computer science into law, I wrote my personal statement on this, you know, that that was my creative move. That was kind of my chess move with an exclamation mark in the notation where I would sort of make a move that would be, you know, a little bit not unconventional. And I needed to make a similar, similarly unconventional move to take my career to gratify my personal interest in India, but also, you know, use some of these skills that I've built up. And, you know, it did come a little bit first full circle because the kind of managed services opportunities and the early days of kind of the legal outsourcing industry and, you know, a lot of the strength and e-discovery that was happening in India really required strong technology fluency, strong kind of process chops, you know, strong kind of science over art kind of thinking. And uh, when I got out there, I it was an unbelievable fit. I, I thought it was going to be a job. I just sort of did a good excuse to kind of travel. And what ended up happening was it was one of the most defining experiences in my career. And the work, the office, the team that I worked with out there was just an absolute crucible for future innovation, for lessons I learned that I kind of carry around with me still today. I mean, really important things that that, that were that were huge for me. So what took me out there, the impetus was kind of like an orthogonal move in my career path just to go do something totally different. And what ended up happening was it was absolutely instrumental in shaping the way that I think about my entire professional life. That's amazing. I think most of our listeners will know Pangea 3 and certainly the iterations it's been through with Thomson Reuters and EY. Etc. But yes. when you joined, 
Where was Pangea 3 in its evolution? Pangea 3 at the time provided legal services offshore, mostly from India, a little bit, you know, two locations in India in Mumbai and Delhi. You know, the founders, Sanjay Kamlani, David Perla, really saw a huge opportunity to kind of leverage a global workforce to that end. Also, an office onshore in the States in Dallas and a small presence elsewhere. At the time that I joined, it was primarily kind of litigation review services, you know, document review, evidence review for e-discovery, as well as some outsourced contracting that was happening, which has exploded in recent years. But Pangea 3 was definitely there in the early years, both kind of contract abstraction and data kind of extraction and, you know, your diligence sort of M&A use case, but also uh, contract drafting and the outsourcing of, you know, entire kind of contracting workflows. We had a really robust offering there from India. And, uh, and elsewhere. And then the third area was really around regulatory and compliance, you know, some legal research, structured research, regulatory mapping, a little bit of AML KYC work, and really kind of getting ahead of this massive onslaught of regulations. A lot of our clients were global financial institutions. And so, you know, coming out of 2008, you know, by the time I went to India, it was 2012, mired in really deep dockets of mortgage-backed securities litigation, you know, regulatory change, management, both in the contracting and, and, and regulatory space. And then also with kind of a, a massive global financial crisis that resulted in, you know, offshoring and disaggregating the work. There was a, just a crazy acceleration that happened at that moment and uh, scale that was required in a moment when budgets were not large. And it was the kind of the perfect recipe for a business like Pangea 3 to just kind of go through uh, skyrocketing growth. By the time I joined, it had already been acquired by Thomson Reuters. And so, but it was a bit of a hosted business. And so Thomson let it sort of live as an independent business, saw a great business value, great business case behind that acquisition, of course, but also understood that it was very different than the rest of the businesses at Thompson. And so sort of let it be and let it kind of continue to have its startup ethos and really grew dramatically during, during the time that I was there. And you talked about some of the uh, professional life lessons you learned by working at Pangea 3 or Thompson Reuters or EY as it, as it evolved. Give us a couple of examples of those, Ed. Let me give you the biggest one. The biggest life lessons I carry, I carry around with me to this day is that there is unbelievably incredible talent that is champing at the bit to do much, much, much more than we give credit for. It's like this weird business secret I feel like I learned out there that my first week out there, I was speaking to like a 23, 24 year old law college in most countries is, you know, a four plus one kind of structure. They might have gone to, you know, a decent law school in their second or third tier Indian city, picked up, moved to Delhi, got a job at Pangea 3, kind of in the big city. And this was sort of their first career. And then three years later, they might be on the phone with the assistant general counsel of Deutsche Bank explaining, you know, really particulars around <laughs> you know, potential liability that existed in their communication layer. And you're just like, wait a second, how did you get from point A to point B? Like what an unbelievable journey that was. And I remember my first and second week out there, I was talking to one of these 23, 24 year olds and they were explaining to me the nuances of collateralized debt obligations and the tranches of equity <laughs> and debt and like why that had to be stratified and like what were the underlying just unbelievable kind of command of that stuff. You know, not like a not like a trader at like a markets desk in a bank, but like certainly like a litigator might at a large law firm. And I remember thinking to myself, because I was hired as a SME, 
remember thinking about myself, like, what am I doing here? <laughs> like, what? <laughs> this person is teaching me what's going on. Like, I, I tried derivatives of Ken Walter. I found it not really my, my kettle of fish. I moved into litigation. And here's this, this young, I was like, why do you know this? And basically they were saying, well, I've been on like 15 of these, you know, mortgage-backed securities matters. So, you know, of course I know this. Like, of course I, of course I know this stuff. It's my job to know it. And I remember thinking to myself, like, this is unbelievable. Like, I cannot believe we did not disaggregate certain tasks, shroud them with process and with artificial intelligence, and then find a way to crank a better machine to create outcomes. We tapped into human potential. And that's a lesson I carry to this day. That's a lesson I carried at EY. That's a lesson that is extremely prominent during my time at Factor right now, because we're really human oriented right now. And the idea that an LPO or an ALSP is selling sort of like a black box of, you know, you ship us some work, we ship out some outcomes, it's done. I think really keeps secret and sort of shrouds a little bit. This fact that there are these unbelievably brilliant people all around the world. You know, Eric Schmidt, the former CEO at, at Alphabet is now running his family office and trying to figure out how to spend his, you know, $20 billion. And one of the things that he's invested into is finding talent around the world. This crazy idea that there are markers that you can identify at an early age of whoever's going to be the next, you know, Sundar Pichai, who's going to be the next unbelievable kind of like generational talent. And that many of them maybe have been missed right? Because they were sort of all that potential existed, but the environmental factors to cultivate it and to coax it out, you know, haven't been presented by Kismet, you know, as, as many people have. And how can we find a structured way to identify it? That's a little bit about how I feel about my journey at Pangea 3, is that there's just genius lying out there in the world. And it's just waiting to be discovered. When I left and came back to the States, I left with that like very basic notion. And it's why I stayed with the industry. A lot of expats who come back after a stint in India you know, like I had law firms calling me to come back into practice, other options that were available. And I stuck with this business. I stuck with this industry because I felt like I knew something that no one else knew, which is like there's radically, vastly intelligent talent. And all of them are capable of doing way more than we have them doing today. That sounds like an amazing journey. Let's talk about Factor a little bit. What took you through the various movements of the old Pangea through Thompson to EY? At the time you moved, you were at EY. What took you to and Factor, which is a spun out of Axiom, if I've got that right? Tell us what Factor's position in the market is and what intrigued you enough about it to leave EY to go be a senior VP at uh, Factor. Yeah, I think, you know, my time at EY, I'm very grateful for it. I worked with some really great people. I still have a lot of friends over there, both in the Pangea business as well as sort of at the EY in the EY world. You know, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Cornelius Grossman, who runs, you know, is the co-leader of the of the global law practice. My job there was as the global technology innovation leader, which put me as kind of like a quasi-CTO for the, the law business at EY, which, you know, is still primarily uh, a legal practice. Like it's kind of the largest law firm no one's heard of, you know, with like thousands of lawyers in like 90 plus countries, but also had acquired this managed service capability through Pangea and Riverview as well as was founding, you know, what's now kind of gotten a lot of momentum in a legal function consulting kind of service. And so those three kind of form the pillars, you know, whether it's managed services and litigation or entity management or contracting, 
whether it's consulting, you know, in sort of like a legal department operating model and all that kind of stuff, spend management and uh, legal risk management, or whether it's legal advisory within the practice of law that existed across the world. And at the time I joined, the legal advisory was certainly, you know, the vast majority of, of the action. The other stuff was just kind of being planted and growing. And so I kind of, in a weird way, left Pangea 3. And even though the managed services world was still under my remit, I really was trying to tackle some of the technology and innovation agendas for the larger global practice. So I did that and that was interesting, really interesting. But there were moments where I just, I was staring down a very long and mature career path. Same kind of thing as like kind of calling on my original vignette at King Spalding. People make try to make partner at a place like EY. It is the kind of ultimate career destination. And I was on track for that. And uh, I was getting a lot of positive feedback about my ability to navigate the complexity of the firm. And I kind of stopped and said, I don't think I want to navigate the complexity of the firm for the next, you know, 19 years <laughs> and then uh, make partner on the back of that and then retire, collect a pension and I guess die. Like, I don't know. You know like, I'm not sure. Like, I, I'm not sure. What, what is this? My Is this my last sprint? Is this kind of the career that I want? Because I think that there's a lot of potential there. There's a huge amount of resources. There's deep client capabilities and account knowledge and just unbelievable resources at a place like at EY. And there's, there's a lot to really be interested in there. But I just wasn't sure that that was what I personally wanted, you know, filling my Outlook calendar every day. And so for the first time since joining, I kind of put my head up and started looking around because I was very, very committed to making it work. Really, you know, I felt like I owed it to all my colleagues at Pangea 3 in the legal managed services business to really help bridge this transition as well as possible. But for the first time, I kind of put my head up when I kind of realized, had this realization about my own, you know, future. And then uh, Chris DeConti from Factor had been calling and I had met him once before. I was very interested in what Factor was trying to do. I think the environment was a better fit. You know, a smaller kind of growth company coming out of Axiom. The business was mature, actually. At, at, I wouldn't say mature, but the business, our business at Factor has been around for over a decade, even though our company has been spun out of Axiom for only about two and a half years. And so it was a very interesting mix of, you know, a long history and body of experience serving some of the best clients in the world and also kind of a fresh start, a new infusion of capital kind of putting a new imprint on the way that we wanted this business to be. So that was just a really great mix. The way I kind of frame it is that I traded the problems of EY for a different set of problems at Factor. <laughs> uh, the problems at Factor are the problems I wanted. You know, it's the problem of growth. It's the problem of standing up and authoring infrastructure in a company. It's the problem of coming up with strategy, go to market, you know, the ability to come up with really thoughtful solutions the ability to have a technology agenda kind of from scratch that was more third party kind of partnership oriented. These were the problems I wanted to have and not the problems of EY that I was, you know, kind of navigating the complexity of. Right. So that's really what animated the career move. And since then, I've been in a product solutions role. Very recently, I've transitioned into a, a head of capabilities role. Both of those things do not stand on their own when I explain my job to people. <laughs> like, what do you do? And it takes me a while. I was going to say, what I was going to say, tell me what a head of capabilities is. Yeah, uh, the easiest way to put it is I oversee all of our talent, their learning and development, and their capacity. What I don't oversee is, with direct accountability at least, is all of our account teams. And so our client and account teams live inside of a, a practice part of our company. And they sort of have account teams and leaders that 
essentially borrow people from the capabilities world to staff onto their engagements and then kind of like rotate them back into capabilities upon completion. And throughout that journey, the capabilities world continues to manage the talent, manage their rotations, manage their learning and development, manage also the overall size and capacity and how many people we have and the shape of that pyramid and all of that, as well as, you know, the skill sets and the capabilities that we really have. The other thing that's kind of a pertinent to that is knowledge management. So what's critical is making sure that every single person that works at Factor walks into any contract negotiation with as much of the collective experience of Factor, you know, at their back and sort of with all of that at their fingertips. And so creating true knowledge management, you know, market positions, most negotiated terms, what we understand about the dynamics, the market know-how. We have that in individual practitioners and we have that in teams. But what we want is to centralize that in a way that many law firms try to do as well and make that available. And so that's all of that kind of talent management, their career management, their development, the learning and the knowledge and their capacity management, that all kind of falls on on me. Probably an easy way of thinking about it is kind of like, it's sort of an office managing partner job, but I have three offices reporting to me. And so I'm not sure what the right analog is. I don't have shorthand for explaining my job to people. My wife struggles to explain my job to people when she's asked, what did your husband do? Well, <laughs> legal innovation services stuff, kind of, you know, but <laughs> that's really, you know, my job is to watch after our people. And I'm very, very grateful for it. Like, it's just, it's a move that I thought hard about, but it's something I'm very, very thankful for. It sounds like a fabulous opportunity. One of the unique things about Factor, which do you think about yourselves as being in the ALSP space? It is where the world would consider us, but I think we think of ourselves as kind of defining a new category. We're going to be testing this a little bit, but uh, our vision, our strategy, our market positioning, all that is kind of um, undergoing its full evolution or kind of metamorphosis. And uh, since we joined, we've been working on this as a leadership team. You know, my CEO, Varun, Dekanti, our strategy officer, and, and everybody else on the leadership team, you know, together with our board to really try to define what we believe are the problems to tackle and why we believe factors really focused on it. Our mantra has always been complex legal work at scale. And so what we don't do is kind of like a, we don't usually follow a commoditized disaggregation play where, you know, that's the kind of the scale lever that ALSPs have traditionally leveraged, right? Disaggregate the work, standardize it, centralize it, put it through a process technology, innovation, you know, put it into a labor arbitrage where we can get a lot of smart people in different labor markets to kind of dispatch that work with, you know, QC and Six Sigma inspired principles and then return outcomes back to through a different means of production. That is absolutely something that we do. It's in our DNA. But what we have found is that our clients are looking for more. They're looking for us to punch higher, to deal with more complexity, to not only hand us the high volume, low complexity tasks, but really for us to get a lot of that middle complexity work, which for us is primarily contracting. So that's something I should mention. Factor as an ALSP, unlike all of our competitors, focuses exclusively on helping our clients transact. We do not provide that e-discovery document review. We do very little in the world of compliance. We do a little bit of corporate governance and entity management for a handful of clients. But for the most part, the vast majority of our work is in contracting. And that's where we believe a lot of the in-house legal workloads are. And it's complex, but it requires more scale today because of the pace of commerce and the contracting needs. And so that's really where Factor is kind of focusing our effort is really creating a new, more integrated approach to solving those scaled, medium complexity legal workloads that today are not really, the market hasn't really presented a solution that's properly bringing the right level of expertise, bringing that right scale that we talked about kind of in the new law playbook, 
but also bringing that deep integration that in-house legal teams provide. And so we are really aspiring to create a different answer to those problems. Well, it's fascinating to see the evolution of this space and the role factors playing into it. Ed, we've, we've run over our time. I could keep this conversation going for a lot longer, but I want to be respectful of your time and say thank you for your time. And it's going to be great to continue to watch you and your team continue to be successful at Factor. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure speaking with you. And I've always been you know, an admirer of all the work that you've done over the years and as you continue to follow the industry. So I will follow you as you follow others <laughs> and um, you know, make sure that we stay in close touch. Thank you very much, Ed. Thanks, Stephen. Thanks for listening to Pioneers and Pathfinders. Be sure to visit thepioneerpodcast.com for show notes and more episodes. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform.